Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, March the 29th, 2023. March, of course, was Oscar month. And one of the movies that I thought was sadly overlooked, probably the best film of the year, was Re Return to Seoul, a, 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 a wonderful movie about um, a young adopted Korean woman who, quote unquote, returns to Seoul by accident. Um, and it's a story about her discovery or perhaps failure to discover where she's really from. Um, magnificent film, particularly um, the, the, the actress who portrayed the, the main character. Um, one uh, headline suggests in Vox that um, it's an exquisite meditation on finding yourself between worlds. The idea of finding oneself between worlds is, of course, kind of an allegorical contradiction, I guess. How can we find ourselves between worlds when um, when those worlds don't exist? This idea of trying, at least, to find ourselves between worlds is a subject that my guest today, Nicole Chung, is very familiar with, one of America's leading young writers. Um, her first book, All You Can Ever Know, a memoir of adoption, was a huge hit a few years ago. Uh, and she has a new book out. Uh, it's out next week uh, on April 5th, A Living Remedy, a memoir. So it's a different kind of memoir. And I'm thrilled that Nicole is joining us uh, from her home in the D.C. area. Uh, Nicole, congratulations on these two books. Both are uh, memoirs. Uh, and for a woman who, and, and, and please don't take this too personally, but for a, a woman who's relatively long, young like yourself, <laughs> two, two memoirs is, is a pretty um, impressive uh, accomplishment. Two first, uh, your, your first two books are memoirs. How is um, A Living Remedy a different kind of memoir from All You Can Ever Know? Uh, thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'm really glad to be here. And um, no, I think all you can ever know. My first book, it was it was very tightly focused on my experience of being a transracial Korean adoptee. You know, as, as you see in that subtitle there in the UK edition, it, it really is my adoption story uh, in terms of growing up adopted a little bit. But the, the focus of the book is on what happened when I decided to search for my Korean birth family. Um, so in my case. They are, they were, are immigrants to the U.S., and so my search was a domestic one. Um, and and sort of what I found through that search and those discoveries, which coincided with the birth of my own first child, um, it's a very tightly focused narrative. And and uh, a living remedy, in contrast, I think it just takes on like a, a much broader slice, I guess, of of my life and sort of somewhat. Uh, topics that are somewhat like broader in scope, uh, grief and class and, and healthcare, um, what it's like to be a grown daughter, uh, both your parents' child and stepping into a role where you're kind of parenting your parents, which I know is a really common experience. Um, and it also delves into what it was like to lose my parents in rapid succession um, and my mother during the, the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, and so it was I mean, it was a completely different writing process for both books. I actually wrote 
much of a living remedy or rewrote it during the pandemic. Um, it was kind of a daunting experience, but I feel like both those books really taught me a lot as a writer. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to, to get out there and start speaking more about, about the new book. It's called a memoir, but in, in, in many ways, it's not really a formal memoir. Memoirs are about oneself. Your new book, uh, A Living Remedy, as you suggested, is about your two um, adoptee parents. Tell me about them. Oh, well, I mean, I guess I would say I do think a lot of the book is about me and sort of my experience as their child. But of course, in order to understand that um, and the topics I wanted to write about in this book, you do have to understand my adoptive parents as individuals. And it was really important to me um, in both the books, but I suppose A Living Remedy, especially since it's a lot of their story comes into it, uh, more than the first book, I, I wanted to be able to show them not just when they were ill, and, and not just when they were dying, but, you know, the, the individuals I remember from growing up in their house, um, you know, I, I really wanted them to come across as like full, complete characters. I don't think a memoir can ever be just solely focused on the narrator. And as, as the author, I shouldn't be the only like well-rounded, fully fleshed out character. Um, and so a little bit about my parents, just autobiographically speaking, they're both from the Cleveland area. They, they met and married very young and they were the only members of their family then to go west. Uh, they moved from Ohio to first Alaska and then Washington State uh, and then Oregon where I grew up. So um, they kind of thought of themselves as the family pioneers, had a really adventurous spirit I think they shared, um, weren't afraid to kind of take risks and um, in a way, adopting me, even though they didn't know anything really about adoption or raising a Korean child, that, that was also kind of a risk for them, but one that they were very excited about. Um, and they were loving parents. I grew up in a, a very loving home, sheltered in a lot of ways, but uh, there was always this sort of financial instability that uh, grew much worse you know, by the time I was in high school. And at that age, as many of us are becoming more aware of, of money, of my family's situation, of what some of their um, health struggles were and how that was leading to increased financial challenges. Um, and so, you know, the book does go into this, but then um, the narrative of like my father's illness and then my mother sort of takes over um, and it becomes much more of a grief story with these other elements brought in. As a peculiar irony, it would seem, Nicole, to not just your narrative, but many narratives in America. The traditional narrative was of white people being successful, the promise often realized of the American dream, but it was only a dream that white men and women were able to realize. Your book, like so many other stories, one way or the other, is about the death of this dream is is that fair i mean did we your i'm not sure if they were conscious of their racial identity or how they thought of themselves as americans but had your two parents existed a generation or two before the one they uh they lived through and unfortunately died in um i, I assume they wouldn't have experienced these dramatic ups and particularly downs of, of economic life in America? 
It's really hard to say, um, you know, obviously, because I only experienced them in their lives and their story in, in the era that, that we're in now. Um, but as I do note in the book, you know, my father's mother also had, um, they shared, they shared some health challenges. Um, and she was sick with uh, kidney disease um, and on dialysis, like he was some 20, 30 years before he was ever diagnosed um, with the same issues. Um, but she was able to, and I think it might have been partly because the cost of healthcare has gone up a great deal, and partly because of the family situation. They were also a working class family, but they had a, a very strong like community network of support. They had family close by. Um, she was able to receive kind of more life extending treatment uh, at home than my father was. Um, you know, reasons for that, like there could be many, I think that, and it's hard to say like, also what my parents' lives would have been like, right, if they had made different choices uh, as well. But um, I will say they really strongly believed in this sort of bootstrapping American myth of if you work hard, you know, and work long, you'll be able to provide for yourselves and your family. I think they had, because of that belief, uh, an expectation that they would always be able to kind of get their needs, needs met. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, that didn't prove to be the case. And I'm sure I'm sure some of that is the times we find ourselves in and increasing inequality. And again, the cost of health care, which they did not they did not have health coverage often. Um, but, yeah, it's it's hard for me to say, you know, what their lives might have been like several decades earlier. Um, yeah, it's interesting that we had um we had a show, uh, Nicole, a couple of weeks ago with Alyssa Quart. Mm. She has a new book out. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. She's a very interesting writer like you. A new book out called Bootstrapped, which I've suggests the... Oh, you've read it? No, I've heard of it. I would like to read it. Yeah, well, it, it's a book about the death of the American dream and the death of... I don't know if sure if it's even the death of the American dream. I think what Alyssa argues is that the dream never really existed. It was always mythologized by one group or another. I'm curious, you talk about your parents being working class. Do you think for you, because you were an adopted child and you looked different from your parents, that you were able to distance yourself in this book and perhaps in your life in terms of writing about them and not placing yourself in that white working class? Um, I'm not entirely sure I understand the question. I mean, I certainly never, I think regardless of what sort of family I'd grown up in, I wouldn't have thought of myself as belonging to, uh, like, I, I, I was always very aware uh, of my racial identity, even before I had any real understanding of what it meant to be Korean. Like, I always knew I wasn't white, even though my family was. Um, I do identify as somebody with a fair bit of class and educational privilege now that my parents didn't have. Um, I did grow up in a, in a white working class family. Uh, I just myself was not white. So it's kind of a different perspective there. Um, but I never sought to distance myself from my family, from like my, adopt, my adoptee origins or that story. Uh, those are, I think, really important parts of this story. Um, so no, I don't think I was... I don't think like either because of my adoption or any other reason, I was kind of trying to distance myself. But just no, I, I'm not suggesting yeah. you were trying. And I'm not suggesting that by distancing yourself, you're looking down or anything like that. I'm just suggesting that perhaps it enabled you to get a certain kind of perspective, which others might have struggled with. 
I'll have to think about that. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, one of the things this book grapples with is how well you ever really understand your parents um, and how well I suppose they understand you, especially as you move into adulthood and you're still their child, but you're also living your own life. You have some distance. I think sometimes with emotional or geographical distance from home, we see things that we weren't able to see growing up there. Um, and in my case, like leaving home and just growing up having a family of my own, I think a lot of that is related to the perspective I've gained in terms of my childhood and my family. Um, I, but I definitely don't presume to think I have like my parents or their story all figured out. I'm really conscious of the fact that what's presented in A Living Remedy and my first book, these are very much my individual perspectives um, at the time I wrote the books. I know like if someone else were to write the story of my parents, um, especially their lives and their deaths, you know, someone with a different relationship, it could look very different. A Living Remedy is my perspective as their only child. Uh, one early review, which loved the book, suggests that you found yourself, and, and I'm quoting here, their words, not mine, the, you, you found yourself robbed of the chance to give back to your beloved parents. You had a time piece recently uh, about, and this is, again, a kind of short memoir, the person I became after my father's death. Mm -hmm. Is that fair in a way, Nicole? Do you feel in living, are you articulating in living remedy the idea that you were somehow robbed? That's an interesting, that's an interesting phrasing. Um, I suppose yeah, and it's way, not, as I said, it's not my yeah. word. It was oh, the yeah. review and it was a very sympathetic review. Loved the book. Yeah, no, I, I read that review and I appreciated it. Um, I don't know if I thought of it as robbed exactly. It's true that, uh, and one of the things I sort of explore in the time essay that you shared just now um, were feelings of regret that I had to kind of grapple with after my father died, um, just because I tried, but wasn't, I just wasn't able to provide all the help that my parents needed at the time that they needed it. And I think as their only child, I always felt this great sense of responsibility, not in like a transactional sense, like, um, you know, like this is what I owe them, especially not in the sense of like, I, I didn't feel I like owed them for adopting me. They never thought of our relationship as transactional in that way either. It's just like, literally I'm their only child and whose responsibility is this if it's not mine? Um, even though I know I'm not responsible personally for say structural failings or for like the safety net that didn't catch my parents at the time they really could have used the help. I mean, I think as their child, I'll still always feel regret that there wasn't more I could do, especially at certain um, kind of desperate junctures for them. So um, yeah, and then of course, I think also what that review is referring to perhaps is the fact that I wasn't able to be with my mother at the very end of her life due to the pandemic. Um, she entered hospice care right as the first COVID cases were being reported widely in the US. My last trip to see her was going to be at like mid-March 2020. And unfortunately that, that didn't happen. Um, I had to live stream her funeral from my living room sofa because my family and I couldn't travel and to be there. So it was, it was really hard. I know at the same time, it's an experience shared by so many people uh, in the early days of the pandemic. And I did feel, I did feel robbed, I guess, of the chance to be there, like at her side during that. And, you know, we spoke every day, there were video chats. I tried to send her what comfort I could, but 
it was not the same as being there. You know, it couldn't be um, for either one of us. And in that sense, I suppose I do still feel robbed. It's interesting, Nicole, earlier you said that your parents never treated the adoption in a transactional sense, never made you feel as if you should thank them. Right. Why would you say that? Is there something you think about uh, the process of adoption, which might lead some people to guilt trip their adopted children? Because you never hear that kind of language outside adoption. You know, it's I, much rarer. It's true. Like, so my parents never viewed, you know, they never tried to make me feel as though they had done me a favor or had like taken me in or um, there wasn't this sense that I should be like deeply grateful um, the way they told the story, like they were the grateful ones. I think that's a very typical like parent sentiment. Sometimes growing up, some people would say things like, wow, your parents are heroes or saints, or, I mean, sometimes they would come right out and say, oh, you must be so grateful to be like, um, I don't know, raised in like a good Christian family, raised in a country that values girls. I mean, I think I've heard, I've heard a lot of comments, of course, not from my own family, but from outside of it about uh, implying or saying outright that as an adoptee, I should be grateful. And that's just something that um, will be familiar to a lot of adoptees, I think, uh, unfortunately. And um, it's something that I've kind of gotten used to, but it, certainly that, that never came like from within my adoptive family. One of your gigs at the moment oh, is you, you write a <laughs> column for Slate giving people advice. What? So you're, you're very good on this, Nicole. What, what advice would you give an adopted child who has been guilt-tripped who's been guilt-tripped by their parents into making them feel as if they should be perpetually thanking their parents for adopting them? Uh, I suppose if that's happening, I would say to, I don't know how old this, this adoptee is. Um, and I should stress that column is for parents. I'm generally not giving advice to children. <laughs> but um, I well, they say, might be, an, they might be yeah. a, an adult adoptee. Right. I think it's important to one of the one of the things I think is important to many adoptees is community. And so it's important to know you're not alone. Sometimes it can feel like a very isolating experience, especially if you don't know other adopted people. But um, there are many of us out there. And I always find a certain level of comfort when I'm with other adoptees. Um, even if we're not talking about adoption, like there's a certain shorthand, there's a, there are things I just don't have to explain, you know, um, and if I want to like share about like a, um, I think what you're describing are sort of like microaggressions against adoptees, right? The implication we should be grateful or that we were saved or that, you know, um, like we owe our adoptive families for taking us in. I guess those are sort of like um, adopting microaggressions and I can, I can share those with fellow adoptees and they'll understand, you know, they'll know immediately what I'm talking about. Um, so some of it is just kind of knowing who you are and knowing there are others like you, even though our stories are all very different. Um, our stories are our own, but we are not alone. And, you know, also I, I guess I would just say no one else, certainly no stranger gets to define your relationship with your family and your parents. Um, I have sometimes been accused because I write about adoption uh, in a complex way of ingratitude by strangers, people implying or just saying outright, I must not have loved my parents. And 10 years ago, maybe that would have 
really, really hurt. Uh, I don't like hearing it, of course, but I know it's not true. And I know that other people don't get to define um, how I felt about my parents. They don't really know the first thing about our relationship. Um, and that kind of assurance has just sort of come with time and experience. You know, like I said, I think 10, 15 years ago, those comments would have been much, much harder for me to deal with. Nicole, sadly, neither of your parents will read this unless, well, certainly not in this world. Um, I'm sure you're deeply regretful of that. What do you think they would think of this book? I've asked myself that so many times. Uh, I asked myself when I was writing it, like, what would they think about this part? Um, I don't, I honestly can't say, but they were always, they didn't always understand my writing, but they were always really supportive or tried to be. So, you know, I, I wish that they could see this. And when I started this book, I thought my mother might be able to, but um, I hope they would, I hope they would see that I was trying to tell this story with honesty and with love. I hope they would see that their love for me and mine for them really comes through. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think they would understand that just because they both really seemed to grasp that about my first book. So that's that's the that's the example I have uh, to go on when I think about what their reaction could be. And they were incredibly generous and supportive. Did you have to be careful about leaving stuff out? I assume you know, you, you're, you're, you're somebody who really respects your own privacy. Did you have challenges, uh, debates within yourself about what you should and shouldn't say about your parents? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, um, that's just kind of part of writing a story that includes other people and details from their lives. Um, I do try to be really careful about protecting their privacy and that I don't think I've ever written anything about them that would make them identifiable in any way. Uh, were they still alive? Um, and when they were alive, I, if, if they came into anything I wrote, you know, I always showed it to them ahead of time and we talked about it. Um, I would sometimes fact check with them, uh, did not give them veto power really, but they never actually asked me to edit or take something out of like my first book, for example. So um, I don't know, like we had, I think part of it was really open communication about what I was planning to write about and what their perspective was. Um, and when I could, I tried to make room for that perspective. Um, there, I can't think of specific examples, but like, I like to signal in the text when I remember something one way, for example, but my mother corrects me and says, she remembers it this way, you know? I think there's room in a memoir to do that type of that type of work and make those acknowledgements without without it hurting the writing or the author's vision. Um, so yeah, I but I will always. I mean, I always think a lot about what it means to put writing out into the world that that includes elements from other people's stories as well, and just try to be as respectful as I can be. This is a, a memoir, not just of family and the grief you experience losing both your parents, but it's also one about social class. Many Europeans in particular come to America and say, these people don't understand that social class is the thing that defines them. Americans are usually uncomfortable or awkward or, or, or even foreign to the idea of social class. Did the writing of this book make you more aware of the idea of social class, perhaps more sympathetic in terms of making sense of the oddities of this country? 
Um, I don't think I was unaware going in. Um, and I was, I was very conscious when I began writing the story. You know, I was curious about some of the things that I was experiencing and grieving my father, whose death was really sped by, um, by inequality, by lack of access to health care, by the fact that um, he was denied different forms of assistance that could have helped him at crucial junctures. And like, this was part of my grief and it was something I wanted to write about because I know, I know how common it is in this country. Uh, there was a point after his death when one of my friends told me, um, in a way his death was such a common American death. And I really took that to heart. It was this new way she had of expressing something I had been wrestling with for weeks about why I had so much regret and anger tied up in, in my grief for my father. You know, I was expecting to be heartbroken when he died. I, I wasn't expecting this rage that I think both my mother and I were dealing with of like, we would talk about it in those weeks after he died, just all the, the chances that we felt we had missed or times when he could have gotten help and didn't um, and not for lack of trying, you know? So I wanted to, to face that, confront that head on. I hadn't seen it very often in grief stories, but it was a really important part of my grief and also my mother's. Um, I think there's often this focus on like personal obligation. You know, what do we owe our parents? Back to that, that question you and I were just discussing. Uh, what does a, a grown child owe their parents as they get older, as they get sicker? And it's true, you can feel very responsible, but ultimately like these, it's also a systemic issue, elder care and, um, you know, lack of health care and the problems that my parents were up against. Those were beyond our capacity, the three of us to solve together. Um, and so that that was something that I was very conscious of and wanted to to be able to explore in this book. Um, hopefully not in a heavy handed way, but just a way that confronts this basic reality of this country. Yeah, you're what you're talking about, I think, is 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 a tragic situation where the natural order of things has been overturned by the dysfunctionality of the healthcare system and perhaps more broadly of American capitalism itself. People are dying too early. You're suggesting that your grief was angry because your father shouldn't have died. Is is that fair, Nicole? The, the, the system, the society, the culture should have enabled him to live for quite a few more years. My father faced real health challenges, um, but they were definitely exacerbated by not just years, but decades of, you know, inadequate health care. And I think that, um, you know, I don't think that death at 67, I'll put it that way. I don't think death at 67 was some inevitability for him that would have happened, like, no matter what. I know that in different ways, he was failed by different systems. Um, so I can't tell you, of course, of course, I don't have the ability to say when he would have died or how sick he would have gotten at what point if he'd had medical care all along and not just very late in life granted as this kind of emergency response after his kidneys had failed, after his diabetes had run rampant. Um, I can't say like when he should have died, but I absolutely believe that it was uh, his conditions were made worse and his death was sped by, by these um, systemic failings. I mentioned uh, the Alyssa Court book, uh, Bootstrapped. Um, it's really an interesting book, uh, liberating ourselves from the American dream. 
I kind of touched on this earlier, but maybe I should rephrase it. It seems to me, and maybe this is part of the narrative in the book, is that whilst your parents didn't live the American dream, you have. Is that fair? I mean, you've become a very successful writer. If, if you do indeed interpret life in terms of social class, you've moved up a class. Is that fair? It's definitely fair to say that I have class and educational privilege my parents didn't have. Um, I haven't read Alyssa Quartz book yet. I would really like to. I have a feeling I would agree with a lot of it um, and her assessment. Yeah, she's great. It'd be actually great to get you both on uh, the show together. It'd be a really interesting conversation. Yeah. No, I I mean, I also, I want to stress, I do think the idea of the American dream and prevailing meritocracy and bootstrapping, I believe these are myths. You know, I don't necessarily think anyone's story, including mine, despite very real advantages and like strokes of luck I've had. um, I, I don't think that, I wouldn't describe it as like the American dream being fulfilled with my life, certainly. Um, I think it's more complicated than that. It is because of sacrifices of my parents and the like how much they invested in me, even though they didn't have extra money to invest, say in my education, for example, they in so many ways, like what what I was able to do is because of how they raised me and what they did um, and what they believed I was capable of. So um, you know, I, I know that I wouldn't be where I am without, without them and without, without the things that they sacrificed for me. Um, but I don't think that my life really adheres to a, like a stereotypical American dream sort of narrative either. Last week we had a, the Brookings Institute scholar, Carol Graham on the mm-hmm. show. She's an expert in the science of well-being. She has a new book out, The Power of Hope. She mm-hmm. argues that Hope, which was once maybe a privilege of the white working class, has been lost. Um, were your parents, in broad terms, were they hopeful of a better future? At what point? Um, I'm curious just because there were definitely periods where I know they were. Um, certainly, like when they started out, like right after they were married and when they were moving west and uh, adopting me, these were all essentially decisions made out of hope. Um, and it, it wasn't in their nature to be like downtrodden or to give up, but, um, you know, certainly their circumstances did get a lot harder as time went on. Um, I don't think it would be right to say they were ever hopeless. Like that's not, that's not how I think about them at all. Um, and I do want to stress, like, I try to be really careful about speaking for like their, um, like inner emotional state. It's not something I write a lot in the book, you know, except, um, where it was like directly shared with me, but, but actually, I mean, I do think of them as pretty fundamentally hopeful people for the most part, um, even though th- there was a lot that they had to worry about. Yeah. And I don't want to turn your parents, it'd be particularly unfair of me to turn your parents into symbols of some generational disappointment, but certainly um, the background to all this, Nicole, both in your book and in many conversations we've had is politics. Um, there is clearly a connection between the rise of Trump and his angry, resentful kind of authoritarianism and the crisis of hope amongst the white working class in this country. Now, again, I'm not, I don't want to know about the politics necessarily of your parents, but do you agree that 
we we Americans collectively have to address this issue if we're to get beyond Donald Trump and his kind of politics? I mean, there's so much else we would have to do other than address. The, the, the question behind that is really, if there is a lack of hope, um, I think especially maybe among younger people, like why, why is that? And you know, how do we address what's causing a sense of powerlessness or hopelessness? And I think it is an increasing inequality. Um, it is in just how expensive it is to live and meet your basic needs and how there's no guarantee of that often, no matter how hard you work. Um, it is in the fact that there are people with unfair advantages and that the inequality gaps continue to widen. Like speaking of my parents particularly, um, I, I would often think about the fact that they expected, um, and it used to be maybe when they were coming of age, a reasonable expectation that their own situation would kind of continue to slowly improve over time. Um, instead, it continued to um, get much harder, you know, and uh, like they would, they made less money toward the end of their lives than they made when I was growing up in their household, you know, um, and that's not the direction that anyone expects or wants their life to go in. I do want to stress, like I, I've really resisted trying to, um, I don't want them to seem like avatars or like tragic heroes or symbols of certainly like a failed American dream. But I think they had expectations, uh, partly based on like their generational reality and maybe the way their, the world was and what they saw within their own families um, that didn't, you know, did not bear out later in their life. Um, again, I, you know, to the, to the bigger question of, of why isn't there hope? I think we've talked about that, but um, it is like a real problem. And I don't think it's going to be one that's easily solved or, you know, certainly we haven't seen it go away just because Trump is no longer in office. Um, when I talk with younger people and like, you know, I have a teenager sometimes when I talk with, with people in her generation, it's just, they're very aware of, of inequality, of injustice, of, of so many problems that they also feel will be their burden to address because adults haven't. Um, and it's easy to see where like a lack of hope can come from. And I think, I don't know, I think one thing that's important to remember is it's okay to have those feelings and to sometimes feel powerless. Um, ultimately, at some point, we still all have a responsibility to do what we can. And sometimes all that means is reducing someone's suffering um, a little bit. If there's anything we can do, we should do it. But these are huge systemic issues. They aren't easily fixed. Let's go back, finally, uh, Nicole, to Return to Seoul, mm -hmm. a movie about a, a young woman who didn't, who, who was lost to herself, it seems to me. Um, you, you don't seem to be like her. You've written these two an, an enormously uh, successful memoirs, All You Can Ever Know, and now this new one, A Living Remedy. Uh, final question for you. How did the writing of A Living Memoir, how did it shore up your sense of self? How did it deepen your knowledge of Ni Nicole Chung? You know, I think... Um... I think the main thing this book taught me was just like trusting myself and being more patient with myself. Um, I've always been, and this is partly how I was raised, but I've always just been someone who kind of pushes through um, often at like personal cost to myself. So for instance, like I write in the book about 
pushing myself really hard, even while I was grieving my father, you know, even in those first weeks after he died, just like it was my first major loss and I had never felt anything like it before. I didn't even know what I needed. I didn't know what to ask for um, in terms of support. And I think sometime between really the, the death of my father and, and losing my mother, I just had to confront my humanity and my limitations um, in, a, in a new kind of way. And I think grief does that to you. I think it's, um, I think it's one reason why the last few years of pandemic have caused so many people to reevaluate. Maybe it's their relationship to work. Maybe it's relationships in their lives. Maybe it's just priorities how they spend their time and energy. But I think there's a reason that so many people have done that during the pandemic. And for me, that process started a little bit earlier with losing my dad. By the time I wrote this book, I had really become a different person. And it's one thing to know that grief has changed you and made you more aware too of your own humanity and your own needs and the need to show yourself grace. And I think it's another thing to confront that in the writing, as you say, and to like see it on the page. Um, you know, I knew I had changed a lot as a writer, as a person. I think actually writing this book and then seeing the finished product just drove that point home more. Um, I live and I think and I approach my work and my life and my priorities quite differently because I've lost both my parents, because that experience fundamentally changed me. And um, I, I just think that writing this book, it wasn't therapeutic, but but it was it did help me confront that you know, those changes and accept them and even be grateful for some of them um, in a new way.